Al Jazeera Podcasts. Whatever I can say, the situation is worse. That's Dr. Zahir Sahlul, a Syrian doctor and the founder of the medical charity MedGlobal. You heard from him before. He spoke to us in February last year, right after two devastating earthquakes hit the Turkish-Syrian border. Back then, he told us that although the situation was bad, he was hopeful about the recovery effort. I'm really feeling happy because of this sympathy to the Syrian people that suddenly outpoured because of this earthquake. He thought the disaster could bring one silver lining, more attention back on the suffering of the people in northwest Syria. But as we near the one-year mark of the disaster, has Syria been forgotten by the world again? I'm Kevin Hurton, and this is The Take. To understand what's been happening on the ground, we spoke to someone who has lived through not only the 2023 earthquakes, but all the suffering since the Syrian civil war began in 2011. My name is Ahmed Halak. I was born in the southern countryside of Idlib, in the northwest of Syria, the village of Kafar Sijna. I have been working as a humanitarian worker and a translator and a media activist with several NGOs uh, here on the ground. Uh, I also worked with the Syria Civil Defense, the White Helmets, in which their task is to save the civilians' lives during the ongoing war. Okay, so... You're joining us from a place that has been just beset by tragedy. Idlib had been a major center of fighting in the Syrian civil war, and then these earthquakes happen. Can you start maybe by painting us a picture of what Idlib looked like before the quakes? Well, actually, before the quake, uh, Idlib has been already affected by over a decade of a brutal war by Russian Assad regime. Almost 13 years ago, people in Syria took to the streets to protest against the government of President Bashar al-Assad. The protests were soon overtaken by a civil war that divided the Syrian people and tore the country apart. What began as civilian protests amid the Arab Spring uprisings now by some estimates has displaced millions and destabilized the region. The United Nations estimated in 2022 that more than 306,000 civilians have been killed, about 1.5% of the population since the conflict started. Others estimate the death toll is double that. You know, the infrastructure has been severely affected by the bombing. Every now and then we have bombing with different kinds of weapons like cluster bombs, artillery, also warplanes, airstrikes. Before the earthquake, the UN said that 14.6 million Syrians were in need of humanitarian assistance, with 6.9 million people internally displaced, mostly in Idlib province. Ahmed, I wonder if if very quickly you could tell us just how Idlib became such a hinge point and such a focal point of the fighting. Yes, Kevin. Idlib location is very important because uh, it links between the coastal areas of Syria and between Turkey and between uh, Aleppo, which is the second biggest province in the country. So there is uh, a big attempts 
to take Idlib by the regime. Idlib is the last major stronghold held by opposition fighters in Syria, and they have controlled much of the region since the beginning of the civil war. That's the reason why it's often the target of Bashar al-Assad's forces, with the support of the Russian military. So a large area of Idlib was taken by the regime forces. So people were forcibly obliged to flee, leaving their towns, their lands, leaving everything. And now Mm. they are living in the camps in very bad condition on the Syrian-Turkish borders. I was uh, displaced in 2019 with a large, huge number of people from Hamal, northern countryside, and Idlib, southern countryside. Mm. So uh, Idlib is a very marginalized area. The people in Idlib are uh, neglected and oppressed, not only by the regime and Russia, but by the international community, by the way. We, we are like, I can uh, give an example, or the, the equal of Idlib is Gaza. We are uh, besieged as, wow. as the besieged in Gaza. Yeah, that, that's the comparison. So you have this community that was absolutely on its knees. It saw multiple major engagements in this ongoing civil war, and then these earthquakes hit. We're almost a year on from the earthquakes, and I'm hoping you can give us a sense of what the recovery looks like today. When you walk down the street in Idlib that was affected by the earthquakes, what would you see? Up till now, the recovery is so small comparing to the scale of destruction. There are rubble and debris still on the ground. Some people try to rehabilitate and repair their houses by their own efforts. And uh, some NGOs responded uh, to provide uh, shelters for the survivors. But the largest number of people are still living in the tents. Their houses have been collapsed. They maybe lost a number of their families. So they have been affected psychologically and physically. I wonder if we can just explore that a little bit more. A lot of our listeners come from places like America or Europe. And, you know, they, they might be used to having tragedies like this, a hurricane or some sort of natural disaster, but there's this expectation that eventually things will get cleaned up. But there's a lack of heavy machinery. There's a lack of basic infrastructure there. So what is it like when things just don't get fixed? And how does that affect the people who are forced to live amongst that ruin? Unfortunately, people became familiar with the tragedies. They have been suffering for 10 years and now the earthquake, it was a crisis upon a crisis. So when they see the ruins, Their hopes are completely broken. They can't bear any more tragedy or any more suffering. By the way, this winter, prices are going crazy and people are not able to afford food for their children. How can they afford uh, other things, basic things like heating materials, like clothes, like medical supplies or medications. So people are living in a very minimum scale uh, or level of life. Yeah, there's a fine line, I imagine, between despair and panic. And when people can't provide basic things like heat and food, the panic can set in. I mean, you are someone who just came back from delivering supplies to a camp for displaced people. I mean, how do you manage not just getting people the goods that they need, but also just their emotions. Given today, I was in the distribution in one of the camps that were built for the survivors of the earthquake. 
We visited the family of a guy, maybe he's 23 years old. He's married and have two daughters. One of them is a newly born. This guy is, uh, is called Abu Umran. He has like a previous injury in his leg, so he can't work, especially in, in cold weather, he can't work. And he have literally nothing in his house. No carpet, no mattresses, no like uh, tools for the kitchen, no heater. We are in the middle of the winter and this man has no heater. And his newly born daughter got sick because of the humidity in, in this rainy area. And he sent the daughter and the wife to the hospital and has, he was sitting alone. He told me, I swear, when this happened to my daughter, I cried. I, I, I am, I am speechless. I don't know what to do. I, I ask God to help me. I also have debts on the market. He is bringing some food for the children from the market, but he has no money. So we responded with what we can to him. Like we provided heater and maybe 20 liters of fuel and a carpet mattresses and blankets oh my goodness i i was really astonished by the way in his house there is no light no electricity because he he, he even doesn't have the cost of a battery or solar panel and ahmed says that desperation has led to even more tragedy in the camps where displaced earthquake survivors live just today this morning three children has been killed by the uh, smoke of the coal heater. You know, when you heat coal, it uh, gives uh, first uh, dioxide. So they were sleeping in the, uh, their mother set the heater for them in the room and closed the door. In a way, the heater uh, was active during the night and the mother was shocked in the morning that they were suffocated by that, that gas or that smoke. And every now and then in winter, we witness such accidents because of the heating materials that are not healthy. Some people even can't bring coal. They use plastic sheets and people, because of the conditions, are risking their life by using materials in heating, uh, which is so damaging and uh, so bad for their health. After the break, While Syria became an earthquake zone last February, it didn't stop being a war zone. And how all of these crises have made it even harder for the most vulnerable people to survive. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. So Ahmed, as if things couldn't get any worse, the war has not stopped either. What is the security situation like in Idlib right now? Uh, well, it depends. A few days or one week ago, Idlib city, it has been attacked by cluster bombs uh, loaded with uh, incendiary weapons like uh, phosphorus. So people were extremely frightened. Uh, one of my close friends, the bomb hit his car, uh, burned his car. And thanks to God, he made it with his family. He was inside the house and the bomb landed outside the house. It's not the first time that's happened. 
Just hours after the earthquakes, Bashar al-Assad's forces shelled one of the affected areas. Monitors say that Russian and Syrian government forces have launched more than 1,200 attacks on Idlib in just the past year. In war-torn northwest Syria, government forces have escalated their attacks on residential areas. At least nine have been killed and 30 injured in Russian strikes on Syrian city of Idlib. The Syrian regime has reacted with airstrikes in the northwest Idlib province, saying it's targeting terrorists. So the security situation in Idlib are unpredictable. Anytime you are walking maybe in a street on the market, you may be subjected to artillery shelling. In fact, when the earthquakes hit, Hiba Ezzedine initially thought it was a shelling attack. Me and my husband, we went under the table because this is the coping mechanism that we know out of the shelling. We didn't know how to act whenever it's an earthquake. Hiba is the head of the Equity and Empowerment Organization, which focuses on women's rights in northwest Syria. She says her work has gotten even more challenging since the earthquakes. Even the local response and the UN and the international response were not gender sensitive. So nothing for girls and women. No, at least no sanitary pads were, were distributed to those women which is like the very, very, very basic need. And then in order to avoid any harassment cases, there used to be two types of shelters, shelters for men and shelters for women. But like for the same family, the man was in in a shelter with other men and the woman with her children are in one shelter. So she is afraid and she has the responsibility to care for the children in the, the condition that she's not safe. And this added another emotional burden on the families themselves. Hiba says she feels like the earthquakes have undone a lot of progress Syrian women have made over the years. Because of the earthquake, all the situation went back to block number one, where is the basic needs, the, the need for food and water and health services. So first of all, we went back to the stereotypical roles of women as caregivers. In addition, we have a lot of women who lost their husbands. And we know that like in many areas of Syria and in Northwest Syria, women, they don't have equal opportunities to access education. So whenever this girl lost her husband, she's responsible for her family, but like she doesn't have any certificate because she's not educated. And she doesn't have anyone to support her. And then the potentiality to be exploited sexually or in other means is higher. And Hiba is already seeing the consequences playing out. Many people lost their houses and now they're hosted by other families who are like originally not having uh, enough income. So one of the first impacts is the increasing number of early marriage cases especially if the housing families um, have boys. So in order to avoid any problems, it's better to marry these ladies from the coming family to the boys of the housing families. And for the families who are in the, the camps already, so they prefer to give away their girls in order to decrease the economic burden. So th- this is like very notable. After a year of the earthquake, it's very notable.
Being forced into early marriage in order to have a place to live is not the only challenge families are facing in the camps. International organizations have also been cutting crucial aid. The World Food Program scaled back its operations in Syria by almost half at the start of this year, saying it doesn't have enough funding to help everyone in need. The World Food Program said it had little choice but to cut back. Because if it kept providing the same amount, it'd run out of food by October. Hiba says she's especially disappointed because she thought the earthquakes could be a turning point for Syria. The earthquake was the first time that we hear people from the regime-controlled areas sympathizing with people in northwest Syria. Because this is a natural disaster. This is not something political. And I think it was like a golden opportunity because this is the first opportunity that Syrians are putting their political attitudes aside, and they're trying to find ways to support each other. And for a while, the earthquake was successful in regaining the light on the Syrian situation, but like it vanished. I think actually like we felt to convince the international community that the effects of the earthquake aren't like in six months or seven months. Because now whenever I meet with donors, they say, It's a year after the earthquake, so we think that the needs of people, they're decreasing, and we think that people, they found their coping mechanisms. How come? How come? Like, it's a year, it's a year of uncertainty, it's a year of shortage of fund, it's a year of killing. So all the misery is increasing. So I think, yes, it managed for a while, it was successful in shedding the light on Syria in general, but like now no one is talking about the earthquake. For Ahmed, he believes the Syrian people can rebuild on their own, but only if they are allowed to live in peace in their homeland. I want the world to know that people in Idlib need a solution. The people who are displaced, their lands and villages are uh, literally empty. So don't squeeze those people in the camps and uh, let them die from hunger, from bad conditions. Just provide them a safe return to their lands and villages and they will recover soon because they have the will, the determination to uh, rebuild their houses and farm their lands. And this is the solution to bring them to their lands is by holding the Assad regime accountable. We were living a very brilliant and nice life But now we are living near the border. We we are just feeling with great nostalgia for our lands. So Ahmed, the UN estimates that more than 36,000 civilians have been killed in Idlib during the war in Syria. The war started in 2011. I mean, that that means there are teenagers now who who know nothing but but war. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, teenagers. Like, is there any sense that this will ever end? Kevin, unfortunately, the teenagers, maybe who were displaced at the age of four or five now, they forgot the, the, their previous life. They, they didn't remember anything. So they get accustomed to living in the camps, living nearing the borders. Just the elderly or the adults like me remember their villages. But the teenagers, let me say, they have been deprived from a good childhood from a good life, from uh, good conditions. I feel sympathy with them because 
didn't receive the life they deserved. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Miranda Lynn with David Enders, Khalid Sultan, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, Chloe K. Lee, Sonia Vagat, Ashish Malhotra, Zaina Badr, Sari Al-Khalili, Farinisa Kampana, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>